Hi, this is Dr. MJ coming to you from beautiful Boston, Massachusetts. This is the Women in Dentistry podcast where we feature women in dentistry making waves and leading the industry through the next decade. I am your host, Dr. Mary Jane Hanlon, a former dental assistant, dental hygienist, and now dentist. I'm very pleased to introduce you today to Ms. Maria Perno Goldie. Maria graduated from the University of Pennsylvania School of Dental Hygiene and is the recipient of the 1999 University of Pennsylvania Dental Hygiene Alumni Achievement Award. She's also a 2003 winner of the Pfizer ADHA Award for Excellence in Dental Hygiene and the 2011 Alfred C. Phones Award. She was awarded the first ever 2016 Distinction in Service Award from the International Federation of Dental Hygienists in June of 2016 by President Joanne Gorelian, RDH PhD, and a presidential citation in 2018 from the ADHA President Tammy Philpatrick. She earned her BA in Health Services Administration from St. Mary's College and an MS in Health Science from San Francisco State University. As a noted researcher, author, and speaker, Maria has presented seminars nationally and internationally on topics such as women's health and wellness, cancers and oral care for the cancer patient, oral cancer, enamel therapy, immunology, and periodontal disease. It is now my pleasure to bring you to my interview with Maria Perno Goldie. Maria, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I know that everybody is so busy, especially, you know, where you're giving educational seminars. I'm sure you're out of control busy. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to share your insights into dentistry with us. So like I do with, with all of my guests, I'd love it if you would start with your story and how you got into dentistry. Well, I went to high school in New Jersey, and at the time that I went to high school, there were not uh, a lot of opportunities for women, so to speak. And my parents were not, my dad had some college education, but my mom wasn't educated. So I didn't come from a family with a long line of college educated individuals. So at the time, you could become a secretary, you could become a nurse, those types of things. And I was in a special program in my school, and we specialized in science. And I really loved science. So I was, it was suggested that I become a dental hygienist. And at the time, I didn't even know what a dental hygienist was. I, it, dentist was never brought up. Physician was never brought up, but dental hygiene. So I took the dental hygiene aptitude test, which at the time was required, and I passed it. And I applied to two schools, University of Pennsylvania, thinking, not really knowing (laughs) this is not an easy school to get into, and Marquette. And um, I was happy to be accepted at uh, University of Pennsylvania because I could commute. So I did. And that's kind of how my journey began. I soon thereafter was married and moved and eventually wound up in San Francisco where active in the San Francisco Dental Hygienist Association and kind of my volunteer career, if you will, started at that point early on. Very good. 
Now, how did you, so walk us a little bit through your journey. You, did you do private practice for a long period of time and then move into seminars? So walk us through that part of the journey. Well, I started immediately when I moved to San Francisco working for a periodontist, and I still have patients from that practice today. I was working four to five days a week early on, and as my journey on the volunteer side continued, I became president of the American Dental Hygienist Association, 1997-1998, and that was really very much a full-time job. So. I was, uh, I was, what I needed to do was to cut down my clinical days. So I did, and I was really focused on doing keynote speeches and those types of things. And it was after that that I really started to, because I, I had to go to different constituents and give keynotes, I also decided, well, why not? My master's degree was in education, so why not? put some courses together and do something that was really useful for them in addition to a keynote. So that was kind of when I really started putting together courses and, and teaching to my peers, as well as occasionally going to students as well into schools. So I continued doing that and then became, right after I was president, I was immediate past president, I became very involved in the International Federation of Dental Hygienists. And then because I was known in that world, I was asked to go different places globally to give courses. And I was president of the International Federation of Dental Hygienists from 2010 to 2013. Wow, what an accomplishment. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It was really an honor and it opened my eyes to so much about dentistry and dental hygiene around the world that I would not have otherwise known. And as a result, I was asked if I would contribute to a textbook. And I thought that was rather odd because I don't teach in a dental hygiene program. I've done some research, I've done some education in schools, in University of California, San Francisco, et cetera. But I never really was uh, an instructor full-time in a dental hygiene program. But they said, that's exactly why we want you, because we want students to go out into the world and understand that things have changed. There are no boundaries globally any longer. And these students need to learn to be critical thinkers, not just follow a recipe and do clinical practice and really understand what it is to do clinical dental hygiene or public health, whatever they choose in other parts of the world. So I became a textbook author about five or six years ago. And it's a very innovative type of textbook. It's kind of a 180 from Dr. Wilkins, who, you know, she had a wonderful, has a wonderful textbook. I believe it's in its 13th or 14th edition. Very prescriptive, you know, and it's a, it's a real different type of book. And so it appeals to different types of people. But we take into account the different styles of learning and things that some of the other textbooks don't do. So I've become more educationally involved as the years have gone on. And I have been an editor, so I've learned how to do scientific articles. So it's been kind of fun. And now that I'm only working clinically about one day a month, I'm doing more online teaching, doing webinars, writing articles, things of that nature. 
How exciting. And so do you travel internationally as well now or pretty limited because of COVID? <laughs> pretty limited because of COVID. I bet you miss it. Yeah, the last international trip was in February and I've had to cancel a couple since then. My husband and I travel extensively for pleasure and I do travel also for still teaching courses and it's just something that we love to do and not having children or pets, unfortunately, it does free us up. I mean, I would love to have five dogs, but it would definitely limit us and my husband keeps saying, you know, there will come a time where we're not going to be as physically able to travel. So let's take advantage of that now and get the dogs laid. I couldn't agree with him more. Honest to goodness, having had dogs in my entire life, I couldn't agree with him more. I actually am very happy that I don't have a dog now. I share other people's dogs. <laughs> See, that's it. And you can send them home. Yeah, you can take care of them and send them home just like grandkids. Yes. That's exciting. So you had a master's in education already. Yes. Now, was that something that you decided to do because you felt it was necessary? Or was it something that you decided to do after the fact just as another goal? I honestly thought it was necessary because when I graduated from Penn, I had a two-year degree. I just felt that as a dental hygienist, I, I was hoping that things would change in the sense of settings and things of that nature. And I felt I needed more education. So I went on and got a bachelor's degree, but it was a bachelor of arts and it was more in management and learning. It was health services administration. So I honestly thought at the time that maybe I would become a hospital administrator. I into it. I, I thought about it and then decided that I still enjoy dental hygiene. So I still didn't feel as I was moving into the area of giving some talks and some educational programs, I felt I needed some instruction and educational methodology. So my master's degree is in health science with an emphasis on education. And my thesis was on women's issues. So I teach a lot on women's wellness because that's, that was my goal many years ago. And at the time, when I first started bringing it into the dental hygiene world, there would be people in my courses saying, well, what does that have to do with dental hygiene? And I would have to explain that, yes, you know, if you're a clinical dental hygienist, more than half of the people that sit in your chair are women. And they have needs as far as wellness, health, and disease. And we need, and, you know, if not, you have a mother, a sister, a daughter. So I think it's important. And of course, now it's very much something that people understand that there are sex differences in brain works and the way the heart works, et cetera. So I feel good now. But, you know, many, 20, 25 years ago when I started, people were wondering, what does that have to do with oral health? And as I became more, known to people, my courses became a little bit more popular. And so I would teach things like women's health from puberty through menopause, go through pregnancy, go through three years where you had to talk about menstrual cycles, birth control pills, and then pregnancy, and then menopause, and the differences between men and women, not just systemically, but orally. So I teach different things now, as well as women's issues. But through the years, 
my focus when I was president of IFTH as an example, people wanted courses on leadership, on international dental hygiene, what is Amsterdam, what is the Netherlands doing different from Italy and different from the US and different from Korea. So, you know, through the years, I've kind of added to my repertoire a little bit. And now I'm focusing a little bit more on things like COVID because it's a new area for us. And individuals, mostly in clinical practice, are what rules do we follow? What guidelines do we follow? It's just a guideline. We don't have to do it. Those kinds of things. So I've actually started a new Facebook page where it addresses dental personnel. So not just dental hygienists, but dentists, assistants, anybody that's working in a clinical practice, especially. You know, I try to give them resources and try to start discussions on things that are going on in our world right now. Things change a little bit, but some things stay the same. It's so true. It's so true. And, you know, with the CDC guidelines changing on a regular basis, I don't know if you've know, you've seen the latest one where it's down to 10 days for the quarantine instead of 14. Yes. You know, we have to be on top of things. And one of the things that I learned the most this year, I, I just happened to be president of Massachusetts Dental Society. And so one of the things I learned this year is I wanted to incorporate as much of the dental hygiene profession in our decision making. So I did reach out to our, well, I think it's really important. Obviously, I have a dental hygiene background, so that's where I started in dentistry. But I do truly believe that it is a group decision, right? And it is a practice decision, what we all should be doing and accountability-wise and responsibility-wise. So I wanted to incorporate them into the discussion. And I will say that the one thing that I realized the most from COVID is that people are fearful of what they don't know and don't understand. And when I had some discussions with the senior women on, on the society, I, I realized that they just had not done a lot of research and a lot of homework. And it took a copious amount of work every single day. I, I think I was working 10 hours a day just reading. Yes. But you have to, you know, when, when we're running large organizations or large, you know, uh, group practices, you have to do that reading. You have to be, you know, fully educated as to, you know, where your safety comes from, what the best protection is for you, your staff, your patients. And if you're not educated, well, you know, shame on you. It's not the dentist's responsibility to do all of this. You have to self-educate, you know? And I think that was a really good lesson for me to learn during all of this is that, you know, when somebody is fearful, I realize, okay, they just need more information. And let me see if I can find more information to provide them so that they can be on the same page that I'm on. You know, it's important that we focus on all of that as we move forward because it is changing day by day, week by week, month by month. I agree 100%. And when I hear and see on Facebook dental hygienists complaining about their employers, first of all, I don't think that's the place to vent. But secondly, I feel that they need to be part of the discussion. I agree with you 100%. And I would say the great majority of dentists allow that and embrace that. There probably are some that do not, and so it becomes difficult. I feel that I'm very, very fortunate. Through the years, I have worked for fabulous dentists, and I had been working since the 70s for a woman dentist, 
And unfortunately, she passed away last year at a young age. And oh, my goodness. It was devastating because in our office, we are all women, from the dental assistant to the other dental hygienist, front desk person, and our boss, who was also our friend. And we worked with her for so long, and she was of our age group, actually a little younger than me. And we really loved her as a person, as a friend. And um, she developed a very rare form of lung cancer and died last October. In the meantime, she knew she was very ill and sold the practice January a year ago. So January 2019 to a young woman who is younger than most of us and is fabulous. You know, she just fit in so well. And we had no idea what she was going to do with the practice. And I only work a day a month you know, sometimes more if they need me, but I live now a couple hours away because I'm semi-retired. So I said to her, look, I know that you, know, you have a lot of decisions to make as far as who you're going to keep, what you're going to do. And so whatever you want me to do, I respect. I do have uh, patients that have come to this practice because all my other practices, they're gone. You know, the dentists have either passed away or retired. So all my, my remaining patients from years ago are coming here. So I don't know if that's acceptable to you or not. And she, she has kept everything the same as she's kept all of us. And we are really happy with her. She is very different in personality, but she's very, very impressive as far as her wanting to, to do the right thing. And that became really evident, especially during COVID, because of course our practices were closed, but we were in constant communication of how should we do this? How should we incorporate this? And when can you all come in for a fitting for your N95s? Those kinds of things. And she's really a wonderful employee and a wonderful person. So I feel that I've been very fortunate throughout my career in clinical dental hygiene because I've just had wonderful experience. And I said to my husband, you know, it's not easy. I have to drive to the San Francisco Bay Area, stay overnight with a friend, sometimes actually stay two nights because of traffic, and to work one day. But I want to do that. I want to see not just my patients who I adore, but my second family, if you will. So it's important. And he said to me, look, you do what makes you happy. And I said, does it concern you, especially now during COVID? And he said, you're probably safer in your office than you are going to the grocery store. And I said, of course, you know, N95, surgical mask on top, glasses, face shield, disposable gown, disposable head coverings. We're very, very careful. And I personally choose not to use uh, ultrasonic scalers and polishing because of aerosols. And I know some people are using them and that's, that's certainly an individual decision. I also know that in our office, if someone does choose to use anything of, of higher speed, they either have the assistant there or a high-speed evacuation system. You know, all the things that, that are necessary. So I feel very fortunate through the years and now to, to have really good employers. You know, it's interesting, the leadership dynamic and how important that is for our young dentists, female dentists, and male dentists to learn when they're leading a team. And they don't realize that they're really going to be in charge until after they really 
get out there and start buying a practice and understand how it yes. works. And then they're like, oh my gosh, they're all going to be coming to me and I have to make all the decisions. So it's something that I find is also a gap in the educational piece, unless you've had leadership roles along the way, either in student government or in student organizations in dental school. Leading a team is not that easy, especially if you're a male and you have a group of women that talk, you know, are reporting to you. And even more so, I think, women to women, you know, when that stubbornness comes in or the ego gets in the way, it really is hard on other women, you know, especially when the women, when a female dentist will say, no, it's my way or the highway, it's not going to go well. Yeah. It's not going to go well. It's difficult. It is difficult. You know, dentists don't often have courses in leadership or in mismanagement. My husband, he's retired now, but he managed dental and medical practices for years. That was his job. And if there was a problem in his offices, they would say with staff, George, you come in and you deal with this. I don't want, I want to do dentistry. I don't want to do this. And so it was interesting, you know, as then he met me 20 years ago, and it was interesting. He would often say to me, I don't know that I would want you in my practice. <laughs> he said, you're like a little prima donna. I said, no, why do you say that? He said, well, you, you only work, you know, a day a week, a day a month, whatever it was at the time. And you have patients that have been seeing you for years and they won't see anybody else. And I said, but my boss is perfectly fine with that. She understands. So if it's a mutually acceptable agreement, I mean, I don't think I'm a prima donna. If I don't have a patient, I help with sterilization. I help the front desk. We're all very much a family. And so it may be different than, you know, your practices, but, you know, we get along just fine. <laughs> so, so it's an interesting dynamic. Absolutely. I've, I have had male bosses and I have to say that my female bosses have, have gotten along with equally as well, if not better. Great. Great. That's good to know. So what do you think is the best piece of advice you've ever gotten in your career? Well, I think it's to be flexible. And as far as clinical dental hygiene, it's not to be a prima donna. That's, that's one of the things you see. And it's not necessarily that I got this advice firsthand, but you read about these things. And, and my husband would tell me, you know, in his practices, some of the things that would happen. So I think one of the things that has been very valuable for me is to be a team player to work well with others and not just in a clinical practice, but also if I'm doing a course in uh, the New York State uh, Dental Hygienist Association or the, the Yankee meeting or wherever I go, to not be a prima donna. I keep using that word, but there are speakers on the circuit that are very demanding. I try very hard to be giving and to, yes, make my necessities known, things of that nature, not to be demanding and not to act better than anybody else. So I believe just trying to get along with others, having empathy. And we've all had this, if you've ever been a public speaker, where your audiovisual doesn't work. I don't freak out. It's happened so many times that I just learn how to deal with it and try to be calm. So advice, you know, take things as they come. Don't be a prima donna and work well with others. Very good advice. Absolutely. 
What do you think, who do you think has had the biggest impact on your life? I would say personally, my parents. Yeah. It was through my parents' love and their devotion to me that I am where I am today. There's no doubt about it. I grew up in New Jersey, went to a Catholic grammar school, and really wanted to go to the public high school because all my friends were going. And the nuns at the time said, you should not be sending your child to the public high school. You need to send her the Catholic high school, which was much more rigorous. And of course, I didn't want to go. But um, they begged my parents, have her take the entrance exam at the time. We had to do that. And my parents said, you really should do this. And I said, first of all, it's expensive. We didn't have a lot of money. And, and I really didn't want to go. But I took the test. I passed. And my deal with my parents was if I passed, I would go. That was probably the best decision I ever made. When I was in my, my school, Canada Catholic in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, they had started a pilot program and they only started with 40 individuals. And it was a college prep program, but it focused on science. And it was only because I was in that program that I got accepted to Penn. And hence my career started. So. My parents sacrificed a lot because they didn't have a lot. I mean, we never wanted for anything, but we did have a lot of excess money. And they, you know, I scholarships, I worked, but they really stepped up to the plate and really helped me and encouraged me through the years. So they probably have had through the years of the most impact in my life. You know, I, I think too, looking at that story or listening to that story that that nun made a very valuable impact on the trajectory of your life also because she probably saw what you realized when you went to that catholic high school she saw your talent she saw your potential and she did not want it to be wasted in a public high school where you know you could get into trouble you could get in the, with the wrong car any number of things can happen so that's amazing the other thing she did, which she made me face, which at the time was my biggest fear, and that was public speaking. And I was in eighth grade when our principal was leaving. And she said, you are going to write a speech for the going away of sister, whatever, I, got, I don't remember her name. And I said, fine, I'll write the speech. And she said, and you're going to give it. Give it to who? She said, the PTA. I was petrified. I mean, absolutely, Pedro, but you couldn't say no to, the, to your teacher. I mean, you just didn't do that. And uh, that was my first experience with public speaking. And she, I mean, not that I totally overcame my fear, but I kind of did a little bit. So I have a lot to be thankful for in my grammar school years. Mm -hmm. So how did you do with that speech? I did okay, apparently. <laughs> Great. I think everybody felt sorry for me, too. I was very nervous and you know the parents all clapped and so that was the beginning I was on the debate team in, in um, high school and whatnot so it really was wonderful having the education that I had and I say to my nieces all the time you know education nobody can take it away from you and they, one has a college degree she doesn't know where she's going from there the other is a nurse now and um, she's fabulous and I and it wasn't easy for her and I really admire the fact that she stuck to it and she's going to be and is a wonderful nurse and 
So it makes me happy that I had a little bit to do with her trajectory in, in the healthcare field because that's something that, you know, her mom, her dad, none of them are in. So I was a little bit influential in that decision. So I feel very good about that. That's great. So we don't, you know, it's amazing. I've, I've had this conversation with others before. We don't know the domino effect of our comments and our guidance ever. You know, what can happen to a person's life? And I think when we realize that the impact that we have when we are engaged and, and try to support another human, that impact goes well beyond that one person and well beyond that one experience. And I think that that's truly a gift that we need to really pay attention to because I think that we can make such a huge impact on the world when we do things like that and just watch out for others. Yeah, I don't think you, none of us really realize the effect we have on people. I was a talk a number of years ago now um, at a, a local school and it was a scientific talk. It was unrested or something like that. But I have a conversational style when I teach and I end my talks with, with a little tiny premature baby and a nice saying. And, you know, I try to connect with the students or whoever I'm teaching. So I went back to the school about a year and a half later. So the person that I taught as a first year student was now graduating. So she came up to me and they had portfolios. And she said, I just want you to know what effect you had on my life. And, I, and she was with friend and she had printed out my saying which was you know about the little baby and and empathy those kinds of things and she said I have let those words guide me and I said well that's really nice that's really nice of you to say that she said you really saved me I said well I know dental hygiene school is difficult at times and I'm glad I was able to help a little bit and her friend said no, you really saved her life. And I looked at her and the implication was that she was suicidal. And I, I was speechless. I was absolutely speechless because that was the first and the last time that anyone has ever shared that kind of information with me. I had no idea that I would have that kind of effect on a human being. And it really kind of stopped me in my tracks. And we, those of us that are you know, on a podium, or doing a webinar, or whatever the case may be, we influence others with our words. And we have to be careful and be mean, make sure they're meaningful. And so it be a good lesson. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. That is, is spot on. And the impact that that young girl, oh, what a great feeling. What a great knowledge to share with you, to have that opportunity to share that story with you couple of years down the road that, you know, because of you, she's still on this earth. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. It was amazing, really. Yeah. So what obstacles in your career have you overcome and, you know, that you're most proud of? I would say public speaking. I believe most people share a fear of public speaking and it wasn't necessarily that I was fearful, but I was apprehensive. So in the beginning, I always had notes. And when I look back on that, it was terrible. <laughs> you know, I would have these notes in front of me. And as time went on, obviously, I, I became a lot more comfortable. And I don't use notes of any sort now because 
I have a very conversational style, but in the beginning, it, it really felt like a hill I had, not just a hill, a mountain I had to climb. So I would say that that was probably the biggest obstacle. And I was forced, just like I was in eighth grade. I was forced, you know, because then I became president of ADHA and subsequently IFDH. And the nice thing is that through the years, I've also consulted to companies, Procter & Gamble, Colgate, other companies, and I've had media training. So I had media training through companies and then extensive media training as an officer in the American Dental Hygienist Association. So I have been very fortunate to really be able to hone my skills and overcome that obstacle. So I'd say that's probably one of the biggest obstacles in my career. I think that is the biggest fear, going to the dentist and public speaking. And I think public speaking takes the cake. I, I do. So <laughs> congratulations for overcoming that because most of the, the country does never does. You know, they couldn't get up in front of a group of people if they wanted to to speak. And it is overwhelming when you first begin, but it's just like everything else. When you do it a couple of times, it gets a little bit easier. And then when you do it a few more times after that, oh my gosh, it's not so bad. Your heart stops racing, your, you know, all of those, your, your sweaty palms stop. And then finally, once you relax into it, it certainly goes a lot easier than you expected. So when you reflect back on your, your entire life, especially from when you were a young girl, do you think you innately had confidence or was that something that was built over time? I think I always had confidence. I grew up with uh, three sisters and one came a little bit later in life. So I was the, I was the middle child for a long time. And then um, I became also a middle child, but the older middle child. And I was always probably the most confident of all my sisters. It's probably still am. And I believe that I keep saying because I was supposed to be the boy. <laughs> it's supposed to be that my father didn't have. So my father had some college education. So my mom didn't. And she couldn't help me with homework and things of that nature. So it was always my dad that was helping me and encouraging me. And he actually built my self-confidence so much through the years. And he just kept pushing and kept pushing. So it's funny, I, I always teased about that, that I was his favorite, but I do think in a way I was the son he didn't have because I wound up going to college and doing things my sisters didn't do. And one of my sisters was a hairdresser, she's retired now. Another is a nurse, so she eventually did go on and get an education. And another did have a few years of college, but then became a mom. So, yeah, I think, you know, my parents, my dad especially, really helped. And then the nuns. I'll go back to the nuns. And uh, they really, really helped me in my early years. And then as time went on, I did have mentors in my world. So whether it was in the Dental Hygienist Association or at my school, I, I got my master's at uh, San Francisco State University. And my women instructors there especially were fabulous and really helped me with my thesis with my focus on women's issues and I was entering an area that wasn't really that popular at the time so it grew as time went on but I think you know looking at myself and my siblings I probably had some innate confidence from as a child. 
I could tell before you even responded that you did. Here's why. I could tell by your lack of fear to keep moving forward. Usually you can't do that if you lack confidence. You, you hold back or you make choices to stay safe rather than to go into the scary realm. And so I could tell that ahead of time. I, I knew that I actually knew the answer to, to the question before. <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> Who in dentistry inspires you today? Is there anyone in particular that inspires you? Well, you know, I look at the leaders around the world, the people that do step up to the plate. I have a, a colleague that she is, she was the president of the International Federation after me, but she was president of ADHA years before me. She has a doctoral degree and, you know, I've always aspired to that, although never really got around to doing that. But probably one of the people that have always, I have always admired is a dental hygienist in the Netherlands. Her name is Dagmar Slot, and she has a doctoral degree and she actually runs a PhD program there and a, and a research facility called Dental Hygienist. And I really admire what she has done. So she has been kind of a role model for me, although probably at this stage, I'm not going to go back to, to get a PhD and my husband wouldn't be so happy <laughs> with our travel. The other group of people that really have inspired me, the Korean dental hygienists, they are so far ahead in educationally than many countries around the world in dental hygiene curricula. And I visited Korea in 2013, and I was amazed at some of the, the programs and projects that they have in place. And they currently have the only PhD in dental hygiene. Many dental hygienists have PhDs in other, other disciplines, but Korea is the only country that has a PhD in dental hygiene. So they definitely have things for us to aspire to. That's fascinating. Now, when I think about that, when I was at Forsyth as a student and I graduated in 82, we had the first female dental hygienist in the entire country of Italy in my class. We had the first dental hygienist from the Bahamas in my class. Mm -hmm. So two firsts for other countries were in my class in amazing to me to this day that they didn't have dental hygiene in, in their programs. Well, the other thing that I've been doing in my, quote, retirement since I finished in 2013, I, I still do a lot for the different organizations. I run Facebook pages and editor of newsletters and whatnot, and my continuing ed. But there's really nothing more for me to do as far as being an officer in any association. So my colleague from Germany and myself, we started the International Dental Hygiene Educators Forum. I felt the need because IFDH only meets every three years. Eventually, it will be every two years. But in between the three years, not a lot really happens with the committees. Yeah, they might meet. They might have a little project. But there's so much going on around the world. And there are people trying to start programs in Bolivia, in Africa, in Pakistan, places where they don't have a clue where to start. We have places like the Netherlands, which has a five-year program in dental hygiene. So I thought, and we thought, why not get dental hygienist educators together 
so that those with more experience can help those that are starting out. So, so we had we just had our last one in Australia last year, but we've had them in the US, in Canada, in Australia. I believe the next one will be in Canada and after that Ireland. And we have had uh, speakers in our meetings from all over the world. And we've learned that, for instance, there's a dental hygienist that started a program on Bolivia. Bolivia is extremely poor, the poorest country in Latin America. And she went down to Bolivia on missions, religious missions. And every year she said the same women would show up and they would be battered and they would need dental hygiene care. And after a while, she said, I not only need to give them dental hygiene, I need to help them get out of poverty. So she single-handedly started a dental hygiene program, which now is affiliated with the university. She's getting funding. It's really amazing what she started. And uh, now they have a program in Bolivia. And these women are, and it's mostly women, some of them have gone on to become dentists, but they are now getting out of poverty in a little in a small way so i feel very positive that what sylvia and i are doing is really helping people around the world not just dental hygienists and helping them with their programs but the patients and the communities that they serve so we're very happy about that and we focus on a variety of things whether it's phds or interdisciplinary care or a variety of topics we may choose to, to focus on. So that's kind of my project now and retirement, if you will. Oh my gosh, I think it's really exciting. Very exciting. Tell me one thing that people might be surprised to learn about you. Well, uh, I'm an animal lover. I mean, an extreme animal lover. I don't know, if they know me well, they probably already know that. Another thing is my, I don't have a ton of hobbies, but my, my favorite hobby is cooking. I come from an Italian background and I love to cook. So um, constantly now that we're, <laughs> we're isolated, you know, making sourdough bread, making pizza, pickling onions or whatever the case may be. So I can't think of anything other than that, that people might not know about me, but um, I'm pretty much an open book. I think, you know, what you see is what you get. So. Absolutely. And you got to love that too, right? Yeah. And some people might be surprised to know I'm still practicing clinically. Even though it's a month, it's still, I do practice and, and I love it. So. Absolutely. Well, to have patients 30 years, yeah. some of them 40 maybe? Yeah. yeah. Wow. I started amazing. in San Francisco 1974. And I am still seeing some of those patients. Mm, amazing. So have you ever had an aha moment where you realize, oh my gosh, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing? You know, I did. I, and I probably had that moment, I re, if you recall, when I was uh, finished with my bachelor's, Bachelor of Arts, Health Services Administration. I thought, well, I don't want to be hands-on anymore. I want to be an administrator. So I actually interviewed for some positions as a hospital administrator. And after a while, and I realized what was involved in that, I thought, uh-huh, I don't want to do that. I'm going to stay being a dental hygienist. So that was probably my biggest aha moment. And uh, through the 
years, I probably have had some others where people have encouraged me and then I, I, I moved on. And obviously from being a member of the San Francisco component and being on a committee to being the president of the International Federation, you know, there was a lot in between there and a lot of people that have helped me along the way. So my biggest aha moment was probably when I decided to stay in dental hygiene. Mm, unbelievable. That's great. What's your favorite way to relieve stress? Because we all have it. So what's your favorite way? Probably cooking. Probably cooking. cooking. Yeah. That's my biggest way. Uh, if I can get somebody's dog over here to play with, watch, that is another way. I mean, that I really wish we had a dog, but normal times we're traveling too much. It wouldn't be fair. But we live in a beautiful golf community. So walking is another way that I, I like to relieve stress. And another sport, if you will, that has become a very popular is pickleball. And um, it's fun, you know, and I'm not mad at it. So, okay, not so much now with COVID, but sometimes, you know, we still go out. But yeah, I would say probably number one is cooking. You know, I do enjoy it. And uh, now that, well, the weather's too hot today, but when the weather isn't quite as hot as it is today, we like to have people over sitting outside, obviously socially distanced, to have dinners. I mean, to me, having a meal and having friends over is something I grew up with. And family, my family isn't here, so my friends have become my family. I have in Arizona, and then all the rest of my family's in New Jersey. So my friends have become my family. And the, really, there's nothing more rewarding to me than having friends over and preparing a meal and having people enjoy it. So that's great. That's great. Do you have a personal motto or a mantra that you live by? Um, it has to do with animals. And it really is, you know, when you look into the eyes of an animal, you see a soul. You see, I really believe that every living being deserves to be alive and that we need to. Um, help those less fortunate than us. And people say, you know, if you could have anything you want, you know, what would you do? And I would, and, and I know a lot of people, especially religious people that are very religious, wouldn't agree with this, but I would say end suffering. I have a soft spot, whether it's a child, whether it's an adult, whether it's an animal, but mostly people that can't look out for themselves. I feel we have a responsibility to look out for them. And, you know, I focus a lot on animals because there aren't a lot of people necessarily that do that. And I just feel it's important that as, as a human being that we're part of society. And that's why nowadays, and I'll just mention a pet peeve right now, is that when people refuse to wear masks, I get so infuriated. Like, this isn't about you. This is about protecting your fellow community member. People, oh, I have an exemption. I can't breathe. It's like, come on. You know, you live in a community. We're in a society. We're civilized. We're not supposed to just be thinking about ourselves, but about our fellow human beings. So they're kind of my mantras as, you know, trying not to be self serving, but trying to look out for others, especially those two legged, four legged that can't look out for themselves. Absolutely wonderful. Do you have a guilty pleasure or secret dream that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, having five dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I would love, you know, probably, yeah, I, I have a lot of Facebook pages about animals and I look at these people that have animal sanctuary. It just warms my heart. And so kind of a secret thing. I obviously I couldn't do it where I live now, but you know, if I had unending funds and had an appropriate place to maybe have a sanctuary where I could take pets that were in need of a home or hospice pets or things of that nature. And uh, that would be, I guess you'd say a secret dream. Oh my gosh. That sounds fabulous to me. I, I also am a, a four-legged pet lover, not so much cats as I, I love dogs. But I will say that that they are a lot of work when you're trying to do a million and one things at the same time. So yeah, definitely not not now before you retire, but definitely when you, you stop your traveling, absolutely. I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great idea. I have a good friend who who's saves cats. I guess Arizona has quite a, a problem with cats on the streets and baby kittens, and they end up in these terrible places and they, they rescue them. And so I love that she's so passionate about it. You know, it's not my thing, but she's really passionate about it. So wh whatever the passion is, you know, just focus your intention there and you can make a difference. I think that every little step we take can make a difference. I agree. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to know you, Maria. And thank you so much for taking the time. I know without a doubt that you have inspired other dental hygienists out there today to do more with their careers. And for that, I want to thank you immensely. So, Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Hanlon, for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure to get to know you a little as well and to, to be able to share some of my thoughts. I do appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Women in Dentistry podcast with Dr. MJ Hanlon. If you like our show and want to know more about us, check out our website, thewomenindentistry.com, or please leave us a review on iTunes. Join us for our next episode as we bring you another amazing woman leading the way for the next generation.